0: If remain standing for the reading of God's Word. God's word comes to us this morning from Philippians chapter one, verses one through five. Hear it now. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Well, thus far, the reading of the word. You may be seated, and if you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, would you show us your glory? By showing us our Christ, and by the work of your Spirit, may you be at work in us, that we might never, ever be the same. This we pray in your Son's name. Amen. Well, as is the great struggle of every preacher, Paul likely had more to communicate and to convey to the Philippians than he had time to communicate it. Presently, there is a similar tug and tension within me. There is so much that I want to say to you, but to attempt to say everything all at once is to say nothing at all, which in a way leads us to why we're studying Philippians. And the reason actually comes to us from a phrase in our passage this morning, verse 5, which says, from the first day until now. Because from Paul's first encounter and meeting with the Philippian believers, which was essentially a small group Bible study down by a river, the Lord had placed within Paul a deep affection and warmth for what would become this little church in Philippi. And dear saints of Christ, Presbyterian Church, the Lord has done a similar work in both Alyssa and I towards you, that from our first meeting until now, the Lord has planted, watered, and grown a deep love and a warm affection for you all. And we are eager by God's grace in Christ to begin walking, limping, stumbling, and fumbling our way towards glory alongside you. Well, Paul's letter to the Philippians arises from out of a context of Deep affection. And it proves to be such a helpful and encouraging and joy filled letter, which from a worldly standpoint could seem a bit counterintuitive because Paul is writing from prison. He's in a prison cell with the likelihood of his own death looming over him like an ever darkening shadow. And friends, in this life, we all must traverse the shadowlands. When Adam fell into sin, he broke every branch on the way down. So none of us gets to this life without a fight, without suffering. For suffering and struggle and shadow, they come for us all. And along the way, we must traverse through the shadows of anxiety, regret, loneliness, Fear, doubt, failure, disappointment, rejection, loss, and so, so much more. And these shadows can seemingly feast upon us, gnawing us down to the very bone. Yet the wonder of Philippians is that from out of the shadow bursts forth the light of joy. And what we will observe and what we in Christ can learn from the Apostle Paul is that even in the shadowy places and spaces of our lives is that the light of the world still shines. For as Nehemiah would remind us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And brothers and sisters, in our increasingly angry and apathetic world, one of the distinct gifts of being in Christ is our unfading and unfaltering joy that shines like a light before the watching world. For in a world full of shadow and darkness, we have Christ. And therefore we have hope and light and life even amidst life's darkest shadows. That like Joshua Dietz of Lonesome Dove, We can truly be cheerful in all weathers. So, as Paul begins his letter, this letter of joy, what is it that Paul first calls to mind? What are the first things that he puts before them? And this morning, I want us to notice three things that are ours in Christ Jesus here this morning a gospel disposition, gospel gifts, and gospel partnership. So our first point, a gospel disposition. What we have before us here in Philippians 1.1 is a rather ordinary beginning to a letter in the ancient world. Because in it, we're introduced to the author and then to the audience. Yet even amidst this ordinary introduction, there's something extraordinary about it. Because notice how Paul describes both the author himself and the audience. For when Paul describes himself... He's a servant. His approach then is not, of, not one of pomp and circumstance. While in other letters it's necessary for him to wield the authority of his apostleship, it is not needed here in this situation and for this church. So instead, his approach here is that of a humble servant. You see, when Paul considers himself, he's humble. He's not looking to make much of himself or to build his own kingdom. But through his life and through his likely death, his desire, his disposition is to faithfully serve the Lord, his master. So Paul's disposition about himself is one of humility. But what of his disposition towards the church? Well, he refers to them as saints, which if you've spent any time around church folk, you realize just how astounding that statement really is. Because church folk are a mess, and so too are their pastors. Yet here, Paul refers to them, and even to us, as saints. And to be clear, saints isn't a title reserved for a certain row or section of the church, which is full of super Christians who've got life somehow figured out. No, because despite what appearances might suggest, none of us do. None of us have it figured out. Now, to be fair, the Philippians were likely one of the healthier churches that we find in the New Testament. But as we will see, even they had their issues. So Paul knows that they've got struggles. And beloved, so too do we. We have our struggles. Yet rather than writing to all of the knuckleheads in Philippi or to the hard-hearted living in the Temecula Valley, no, Paul writes this to all of the saints who were in Christ Jesus. Because being in Christ changes everything. For in Christ Jesus, we really are saints. We really are holy ones. We really are the set-apart ones. For the only miracle necessary to secure our sainthood is the miraculous work of Christ on our behalf in the gospel. Therefore, who we are and what we are is now defined by the work of Christ. It is His work, Christ's work, not ours, that secures our sainthood. That sinners like us are justified through the precious gift of faith in Him. For Jesus Christ, through His life, death, resurrection, and ascension, has redeemed our lives from out of a deep, dark darkness. Therefore, the Christian ethic... Or the Christian life is then never a command to be something that we aren't, but a calling to press further up and further into who we already are in Christ Jesus. So when Paul thinks of himself, he's humble. And when he thinks of the church, he's hopeful. And beloved, this Paul's disposition towards both himself And to the Philippians, describe our own. When we consider ourselves, are we humble? When we consider one another, are we hopeful? Are we rooted in Christ, pursuing, chasing after humility? Or are we instead pursuing our own glory? our own honor, our own recognition, and do we hold it against others when they fail to perceive just how amazing we are? Are we rooted in Christ, hopeful in our disposition towards one another, or are we rather pessimistic, cynical, and apathetic towards each other? Do we find it hard to forgive those who've wronged us. Beloved, grace changes everything. So in response to the wonders of that grace, my prayer is that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would seep all the way down into even our perceptions, our perceptions, our dispositions towards ourselves, but also one another, which takes us to our second point Gospel gifts. Have a look down at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in your Bible reading plan, this is probably one of those, those passages that's easy to allow our eyes to just kind of bounce right past. We just kind of bounce right over it. After all, it's essentially the same greeting he uses in all of his letters. A variation of this same greeting. But what's ordinary for Paul was actually rather extraordinary in its day. The ordinary greeting in the majority of ancient letters was essentially just saying greetings. Or if they really wanted to get fancy, many greetings. But instead, Paul uses this ordinary parts of any letter to remind and to greet believers of two of the most extraordinary gifts God has given to us in the gospel, grace and peace. Grace, and grace is unmerited or undeserved favor, which means grace is not something that we could ever achieve. It's not something that we deserve. It's not something that we could merit in and of ourselves. We could never earn God's favor. For as Romans 3 reminds us, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, there's no amount of spiritual push-ups or service projects or service hours that we could ever do to undo the reality that our sin separates us from our holy God. Yet in Christ, we who have fallen short are now justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, so that we who were far can now draw near. Because in Christ, we are clothed in a righteousness that's not our own. A righteousness where we now possess the wonder of our God's favor as his beloved children. We are, as as, uh, Zacharias says, the apple of His eye. And as our passage demonstrates, the source of this great and glorious grace is God himself. But grace isn't the only gift that our God blesses us with in the gospel. He also gives us peace, which is a word whose roots trace all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The Hebrew word being shalom, which means peace, prosperity, well-being in all of life. That in a world at war, there is a longing within us all for peace. Peace from the horrors of the past. Peace from the annoyances of the present. Peace from the fears about our future. Helping people search for their inner peace is big business these days. Yet one of the free gifts of the gospel is true, real Everlasting peace, which stands in stark contrast to the momentary trinkets and the fleeting and fledgling promises that this world offers us. Peace with God on account of the precious work of Christ is a peace that can and actually does surpass all understanding, a peace that transcends all of the messiness of our lives. A peace that holds us together even when it feels like we're starting to fall apart. Because in Christ, we know the one who holds all things together, and that includes us. And it's he who has brought us peace. Well, like I said from the outset of verse 2, it's easy to just bounce right Past this verse to quickly move along to get to the the meatier portions of the letter. But brothers and sisters there's a reason why Paul includes this greeting in each one of his letters. Because we are so quick to forget. Particularly when it comes to the great gifts of God in the gospel. A few years back a friend that was a teacher shared a story with me, a story about a season in his life when his wife had gotten quite sick. And between hospital stays and surgeries and special medications and a few other things, by the time insurance had paid their share, my friend and his wife were left with a bill of about $100,000, which for a teacher at the time was essentially a bazillion gazillion dollars. Because that was about $99,000 more than he had in the bank. Thankfully, his wife was healthy. But now they had all of this debt to deal with. So they started praying and they started trying to work the problem. And they reached out to family and friends for advice and for help. And my friend had this uncle. Uncle who had always been a kind and supportive, albeit a bit eccentric character in his life. And his uncle also happened to be independently wealthy. And as my friend shared with his uncle his predicament, the uncle's advice to him left him rather surprised. Because he said this, I don't think you need to worry about the money. I think you need to throw a big party. Break out all of your fanciest dishes and celebrate the fact that your wife is healthy again. As my friend tells it, to put it mildly, he wasn't thrilled with this suggestion. For here he was in financial ruin, and his rich uncle is telling him to throw a big party. Yet later, as he relayed those frustrations to his dear wife, she simply smiled and said, I think a party would be fun. And you know, it would be fun to finally use all that fancy smancy china we got at our wedding. We've had it for nearly seven years now and we've never used it. I guess now is as good a chance as ever. So up into the attic he crawled and dusted off the cobwebs and as they opened up the, the unopened boxes from their wedding, uh, they began to organize all of the various dishes. And there, taped haphazardly to the bottom of a gravy bowl, was a money order from his uncle for $500,000. The gift they had so desperately needed was already theirs. It already lay in their possession, but its benefits were left untapped, unused, and unenjoyed. And brothers and sisters, when it comes to these most precious and more precious than than that gift the most precious gifts of the gospel, can the same be true of us? Are there great gospel gifts hidden away in the attics of our lives? Or have these gospel gifts made their way into our kitchens? Have the extraordinary gifts of our God become an extraordinarily ordinary part of our lives? For life can come at us fast. Yet in Christ, we can meet the various struggles, temptations, the disappointments, and the sorrows of life with the precious free gifts of gospel grace and peace. That's why the psalmist encourages us to forget not his benefits. That's why, as we heard in our call to worship this morning, from Lamentations, that this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because in the steadfast love of our God, he has lavished our lives with his grace and peace. The very gifts that our souls so desperately needed, our God has gloriously and extravagantly provided for and the wonder of these gifts is that they, they change us, don't they? That through the power of the Holy Spirit, these glorious gifts transform us from our guts to glory. They transform us from the inside out. That as the grace and peace seeps deeper and deeper and deeper into our souls, into our guts, they begin to permeate how we think how we react, how we live our lives, which drives us to our third point this morning, gospel partnership. I'll have a look down to verses three to five, which says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from, from the first day until now. Joy seems to be bursting from the seams of this passage. It overflows from the apostle Paul's pen. Essentially, whenever these Philippians happen to pop into Paul's mind, his heart bubbles over in thanksgiving to God. His reflections and his ponderings of the church produce in his heart's worshipful joy, prayer, and thanksgiving to the Lord his God. So I'll ask the same uncomfortable question that's kind of been reverberating around in my heart this week. Is that true of me? Is that true of us? Like what gets produced in our hearts when we reflect, when we ponder the church? When your brothers and sisters come into your mind, in what direction do your thoughts and emotions flow? For Paul, it drove him to worship. But for us, is it worry? Or is it the ways that we've been wronged? The ways we've been disappointed or hurt by those in the church? Is it all of the church's weaknesses? Or the myriad of ways that she fails to be what we want her to be? And to be fair, no church this side of glory has ever arrived. Because we aren't home yet. And the reality of that is quite evident and often quite messy, And many of us have learned over the years that sheep have sharper teeth than they look. And that includes the church here in Philippians. As we'll see in chapter four, Paul calls out before the whole congregation and for the rest of church history, two women who just can't seem to get along with each other. So amidst the mess, The million-dollar question then is, where is all of this worshipful, prayerful, and joyful thanksgiving coming from? Like, what's driving it? Well, in a word, mission. They have the same mission and vision for life. Notice it here in verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It is a mission that shaped by the gospel. For the gospel, it, it takes us to Jesus, it brings us together with Jesus, and then it puts us together on mission. In Greek, the word used for partnership here is koinonia. Perhaps you've heard it before. It's the same word for fellowship or communion, a, a word that signified a shared life, a common vision, a shared purpose or mission. They may be living in different places and spaces, but they're on the same mission. They're on the same team and they're striving towards the same goal. And the mission that knits us together in special and profound ways is the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. For it produces in us a gospel camaraderie that produces a worshipful, prayerful, and joyful gratitude that we see here in the Apostle Paul for one another. And the gospel mission has a way of producing that same gospel camaraderie in all of us as well. Perhaps one of the big causes of the lack of joy, the lack of thanksgiving, and the lack of prayer for one another is actually a result of a lack of mission together because our souls were never intended for a purposeless or an aimless existence. So it makes sense that we get anxious, that we get frustrated and even at times angry when we find ourselves missionally adrift. Yet in the gospel, what we discover is that the church has been given a mission And that mission has been shaped by our message, the message of the gospel, that the good news of the kingdom of God is at hand, a message that we proclaim to hopeless sinners like us, that in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world has come, and that in him, the forgiveness of sins and life eternal can be ours, for in him, all of the promises of the gospel are true. And they can be true for you as well this morning. For the gospel is for all who put, who by faith put their trust and their hope in Jesus. And it is this message that Paul first proclaimed in Philippi those many years ago. And what fills Paul's heart with worship and with gratitude is that this little church is still going. It's still as a... a, a A a, a PCA pastor once put it: "It's this little church is still on mission, on message, and in ministry." One conclusion, beloved, as my family and I enter into life and ministry amongst you, my prayer is that we would be a people shaped and formed by the gospel. That we would, by God's grace, be a gospel-shaped people from how we view and perceive ourselves and others to how the, the gospel gifts by which we navigate our way through the complexities and the perplexities of, our, of this life to the mission of the message that our Savior has given us to share along the way. And as we together embark, my prayer is that we would grow, that he would grow within each of us a heart for God, a mind for truth, and a deep growing in an abiding affection for one another. If you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the glorious gifts of the gospel and of peace. A gospel and a peace that can only be ours in and through the person and the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this sweet and precious and joy-filled letter to the Philippians. And Father, would you bless our study through it? Would you teach us? Would you grow us? Grow us? Would you challenge us and correct us and nourish our souls? Because Father, we are a needy and desperate people, desperate for the grace of God that is freely given to us in the gospel. So Father, thank you that you give us exactly what we need. Help us now as we come to the table. Pray these things now in your son's name. Amen.